Good morning, VCOB. I am glad to be here with you. Happy Sunday. For those of you that I have not gotten a chance to meet yet, my name is Chris Lash, and you are stuck with me for a handful of sessions this summer, and I am really excited to dig in and spend some time with you. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. In the last 15 years, the class Designing Your Life has become one of the most popular classes at Stanford. Bill Burnett and Dave Evans designed a course for Stanford's D school or design school for anxious undergrads who have no idea what they want to do in life. They often feel stuck in trying to figure out some kind of a career, but Evans and Barnett have found that this course is remarkably effective for retirees even who are asking similar questions in a different stage of life. It's not just for undergrads. Designing your life also appeals across the spectrum. This model is built on the principles of design thinking that utilizes a simple process to reframe an issue and gain traction through multiple iterations. They start with empathy, where you understand the depth of the problem, and it moves to define and get clear on what the problem is you're actually trying to solve. You ideate next, where you brainstorm potential solutions, and prototype, where you just go wild in designing and designing and designing and designing. You design as many different iterations as possible. And then you test, where you see if it actually works. If it doesn't work, then we take what works, and we move on with it, we keep it, and we just throw away what didn't work, and we repeat this process time and time again until we arrive at a new conclusion as we arrive at a new end point. The idea is to keep moving, to make small improvements each time and come up with as many different possible solutions so you're not just hedging on one thing. But they found that just starting with empathy as the first step in this design thinking process, it wasn't enough. So they added a step right before that, which Dave Evans calls radical acceptance. The idea is to radically accept your current situation, not as you want it to be, but as things really are. Because once you accept the reality of your situation, you can then see new possibilities. You can create a new future. But if you haven't accepted the reality, whatever you design would be crazy off base. By this point in our mini-series on the plagues, we're into the eighth plague. And it's pretty clear that Pharaoh has not accepted reality. He keeps going through this design thinking process, trying to figure out which way he can get Moses to leave. But he's stuck, not accepting reality. He's looking back at what once was and what could have been. And so the plagues continue. And so, so far we've seen their main water source and storehouses and wherever they stored their water turned to blood for a time. They had frogs, gnats, flies. They had the depth, the death of Egyptian livestock. Their meat supply died overnight. They had boils on everyone, hail falling down and killing anybody who was outside. And now we're on the eighth plague, locusts. But this whole plague thing has been pretty interesting to me, and it's been interesting for me to study on my own. Um, You have what will ultimately be 10 major divine actions that's taken directly against a powerful nation. 
And this is unique because you don't see this kind of thing happen anywhere else in Scripture. God doesn't do this to any other nation. In, in biblical history, you don't see God do this to the Babylonians or to the Romans. Even the rulers who avowedly reject him, God intervenes, but you don't see him sending plagues like this. Further, this whole thing could have been solved in an instant. Well, God and Pharaoh are locked in this weird struggle, they aren't really. It's not like they're evenly matched. God is obviously more powerful than Pharaoh, and Pharaoh seems very minor league when it's compared to God's power. He literally just created the universe a book ago. And then you have this whole business with Pharaoh hardening his heart and then God hardening his heart. It's this interesting dance that you see happen here in the book of Exodus. And it's never been satisfactory to me um, that God needed to prove something to Pharaoh. That's often how we talk about it, that God needed to prove something either to Pharaoh, to Egypt, to Israel, or whatnot. That God somehow needed to uh, use these plagues as a way to flex for him to get his kicks out of showing his power. It sounds often like God is insecure and needs the fame associated with winning, like he's Jordan in the last dance. But that, for me, doesn't quite get at what's really going on here. And and further, it's not even good theology. It's not that God is looking for fame or that he's evenly matched against Pharaoh or that this is just an anomaly. There's something unique happening here. Throughout the book, God has been giving us snapshot pictures for what he's doing in these plagues. I mean, we know the goal of this whole thing is the common refrain that Moses says to Pharaoh to let my people go. But God ultimately does want to free his people, but that doesn't answer why God is taking these 10 significant steps. But in our text today, we get a clue as to what God is doing here. God specifically gives us three reasons for why he's going through all this trouble. He gives us glimpses all along, but here he really dives in on these reasons. So let's jump in. We are in Exodus 10, starting in verse 1. Exodus chapter 10, starting in verse 1. The text reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Now he's going to tell us why. That I may show these signs of mine among them, a.k.a. the Egyptians, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord." So we see right here, there are plagues done for the Egyptians. When it comes to Egypt, he says that the goal is to show these signs, to show his power, who he actually is. And you see wordplay, I am, coming from when God introduced himself to Moses just a few chapters earlier. I am the only, the one, the big Yahweh God. And then you see that he's doing this for Israel and for Moses. So the next two reasons that God provides is that you may tell, the text says, your sons and daughters and that you may know. God brings Israel's future generations into this with the implication being that they are going to survive, the Israelites are going to survive, and then pass on these stories about who God is and how he's delivered them. 
It is so they may be completely convinced that they know who God is and how he's come through for them, how he's never abandoned them. Because let's face it, if you're Israel, uh, you have been in bondage and slavery for hundreds of years, and you think that God has pretty much abandoned you, and the legends of God caring for your forefathers and foremothers uh, all, all gather up and make it seem pretty impossible he's still doing anything now. He might have helped them previously, but he doesn't do much for us now. In fact, he has abandoned us. But with these plagues, God reminds Israel that he will fight for them. He has been fighting for them, and he is with them presently. And so put yourself also in Moses' shoes. He is just about to lead this entire nation. He's gotten this crazy promotion where he is leading this nation out of Israel. And these plagues show Moses the power of God. But there's another level I want to highlight where why God is doing all this work. The plagues are bigger than Egypt. They're bigger than Israel. They're bigger than Moses. There's something else happening here. If you rewind back to chapter 9, you begin to see another glimpse and snapshot of what God is doing here. And God tips his hand a little more about what his purposes are in these plagues. It happens before the plague of hail when Moses tells Pharaoh in 9.14, he says, Send all my plagues on you yourself, or this is just a way for God to say it's very personal, on your very heart. It's personal. God knows this is personal for Pharaoh. The text continues, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. Bible scholar Terence Fretheim puts it like this. To say that God is God of all the earth means that all its people are God's people. They should know the name of this God. Hence, God's purposes in these events are not focused simply on the redemption of Israel. God's purposes span the world. God is acting in such a public way so that God's good news can be proclaimed to everyone. And he references the book of Romans in the New Testament. Fretheim is pointing us to a deeper reason why God is locked in this struggle with Pharaoh. It is for Israel, yes. It is to show himself to Egypt, yes. But God's actions here reverberate beyond just Egypt into the whole world. God's showdown with Pharaoh is much bigger than just Pharaoh, much bigger than Egypt, much bigger than Israel. As God delivers Israel from the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh, from the backbreaking labor, from the system that profits off the weak, from the way in which they dehumanized divine image bearers, God signals that this action is for creation too. God is making such a public display here so that the good news of God's rescue can be proclaimed in all the earth, among all creation. This is a creational mission. It moves from Israel out into the rest of the world. So don't miss this. God is not bringing everything back to the status quo or even just a little bit better. This is a radical reshaping of the whole system. He is moving Israel forward, and with it, he's moving all creation forward. In theological terms, this is called renewal or restoration. 
God is in the process of remaking. He's pulling Israel away from Egypt and bringing them forward into a new future to establish a new kingdom. And this is renewal. This is what renewal is. When renewal comes, it transforms everything it touches. For creation, renewal brings order and flourishing. Renewal is the color green after winter or a blooming tulip in a manicured garden. Renewal means life. When renewal comes to society, it writes injustice, it brings safety, it makes music and art and brings dancing. It is a societal hunger for following the way of Jesus. Renewal in business goes beyond being merely ethical to using ambition, innovation, and creativity to set the world right one small step at a time. This is renewal. When renewal for families and friendships, it means forgiveness. For deep laughter, it means stories told over and over. It means healing and connection. And when renewal touches you, it is freedom. It's no shame or fear. It's just trust and love. Renewal is everything made right. Everything filled with promise. Renewal is God right here. God among us. God with us. And yet, we sacrifice renewal for familiarity. We sacrifice renewal to return to what we know. Let's pick it up in verse 3. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. In the next several verses, Pharaoh tries to haggle with Moses and by proxy haggle with God, but God rejects it, Moses rejects it, and it finally sends the plague. So let's jump down to verse 13. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up all over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, since such a dense swarm of locusts as had ever been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained. Neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. This is total. This is devastating. This is a huge issue. Nobody alive in Egypt at that time would have seen anything like it, the text says. This is, in our modern terms, a food supply chain issue. 
Remember, we've already seen the pollution of blood in their stored water. Their cupboards and food storage saw flies and frogs, and they've had the death of the livestock, their meat supply. The hail killed all the good wheat that's agriculture, and now the locusts have eaten everything that was going to feed them tomorrow. In this exchange with God, he has taken their entire economic security. It's gone in the eighth plague. As a side note, this is still actually a big issue. Um, so there's a couple photos that I have for you to show you what it's like for locusts to descend on a land. And you can see that there are people who are trying to swat the locusts away, but they come in absolute hordes. And this is what the Bible is describing. And even right now, there are hordes of locusts eating up crops in Pakistan and India, and farmers are trying to do whatever they can to try and save their fields, but even when they spray the fields, the results are kind of mixed. And they're fearful that the locusts will threaten their food supply with the real potential for Pakistan and India that it'll bring shortages and starvation. But for Egypt, maybe if they had been lean... Maybe if they had meticulously managed their rations and kept close to their budget. Maybe, in their mentality, the Egyptians would be able to weather this. It's just two more weeks of putting up with this, they'd say. It'll be over soon. Soon things will get back to normal. But in this single move, God has completely taken away their future hope. It's not just that today they've lost their bread. But they lost it tomorrow. They lost next season's yield. And to some degree, to be honest, I sympathize with Pharaoh. Um, His life was going well. His theological system was intact. He had a strong economy. He was very wealthy. His people were happy. They had a stable workforce. Life in Egypt was prosperous, secure, and comfortable. And then everything is taken from him. And it progressively moves from bad to worse. And now, not only is he facing future economic ruin, but surely he's facing intense political pressure everywhere, from his people to his inner court to the people in the streets who have lost their nerve. And you begin to see some of this murmurings in in verse 7 when it says, Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man come to snare us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? That is such an interesting question. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? What a bold question coming from the servants of Pharaoh. This is a question born of frantic desperation, trying to find any way to return to the way things were. I just need to find a way out of this. Pharaoh, I don't give why you won't give in. Don't you understand what's been going on this entire time? They want relief. They want their security back. They want their comfort and assurance for the future. They literally just want bread. They want to return to normal. And Pharaoh probably wants the same thing. I mean, that's why you see him haggling back and forth with Moses. But he's going about it differently. While they just kind of want Pharaoh to give in, Pharaoh begins, he can negotiate his way back to normal. 
We don't read it in this text, and we skipped over it, but referenced it earlier. Um, he tries to negotiate with Moses by saying, okay, I'll let some of you go. How about you take the men, but you keep the women and children here, thereby assuring that they would have to return. Um, he's protecting his normal. He doesn't want his slave workforce to leave. He wants everything to return back to this economic freedom and security. And he's like, it's like so close that he can taste it. You just need a couple things to put everything back in order again. And you can hear Pharaoh straining to put everything right again, where he no longer has the political pressures, no longer has the food shortages, no longer has this economic issues, where everything is just normal one more time. Can we just go back to normal? Can we return to a time when everything made sense? That's the question that Pharaoh's court asks him, more like begs him. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? This feels a little close to home. (laughs) We just want life to get back to normal. We want our normal gatherings. We want our backyard parties, our stability and security. We want the anxiety to no longer hang over our head like a dark cloud. We want to spend time with loved ones. We want our lives back. But if we spend our time looking backwards, we miss the renewal that God is working out in the present. Pharaoh can't see it. He just wants life to go back to normal. He just wants to win and be done with it. And he can't see that renewal is happening in his very midst. He's blind to it. He has a love for security and comfort. That's all blinded him. In the language of Exodus, it's hardened his heart. He can't see what the Lord's doing, and he refuses to see what the Lord's doing. His mind is so locked in the past that he refuses to have a soft heart to see what the future God is bringing for Israel and bringing for all creation. It's renewal. Listen, don't sacrifice renewal for your desire to return to normal. Don't sacrifice renewal for your desire to return to normal. Renewal is so much better than your memories of what once was. Notice that even in the grand story of the Bible, it's not about a return to Eden. Even the paradise that God created for the first humans, we're not going back there. We're moving to a city. It starts in a garden and it ends in a city. God is not trying to go backward to the way things were. What starts in a garden ends in a city. Now, I'm not drawing a straight line from the plagues to the coronavirus saying that God sent the coronavirus into the world to bring renewal. Uh, I think that that gets you into some kind of theological hot water, and that theological reasoning takes you into some strange places. And and quite frankly, that turns God into this weird, uh, cruel strategist that it, where the ends justify the means, and more of a loving father figure that we see throughout the scriptures. But remember how Genesis ended. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What if the opportunity before us is to find the places where God is bringing renewal? 
where the kingdom of heaven is abruptly and already breaking through our modern moment? What if we can keep our eyes out for the ways in which God is moving in our neighborhoods, our families, and in ourselves? I love this quote from Mark Sayers, who's a pastor in Melbourne, Australia. Um, He was seeing some of these patterns of renewal spreading across the West long before COVID jumped in. And he wrote this in November of 2019. He says, It has been said that empires fall when their promise doesn't live up to the reality of what's delivered. And this is increasingly post-Christianity's problem. Yet it is an opportunity for those hungry for renewal. Delivered a diet low on meaning, many again turned to the secular religions of politics, tribalism, and ideology. Yet some will again look upward, crying out for God to move. This has happened throughout history. When society buckles under the pressure, when myths are exposed, empires totter, technology upends, globalization moves us beyond what is known, this is when renewals, awakenings, and revivals occur. It happened in the first century as the church spread out into the world. It happened in the 18th century as the first waves of modern globalization was birthed. And it is happening again in our day. We need to reframe our moment, seeing it as an opportunity to again see a renewal of the church. Don't miss that. We need to reframe our moment, seeing it as an opportunity to again see a renewal of the church. A radical acceptance, a reframe. This is an opportunity to again see the renewal of the church. Because this is what it means. There is so much hope in this season. There is so much future ahead of us. This is an opportunity for us to participate in the renewal of all things. God is in the process of renewing all things and he invites you into it. He invites me into it. He invites our church into it. But how do we get there? How can we participate in this renewal of all things? God is in the process of renewing all things, and he invites you and I, but how can we participate in renewal? Well, I think it requires, honestly, really only one thing from you, really only one thing from me, release. We need to release. You need to release. Because here we are with closed fists, holding on to the ways it was supposed to be, We're holding on to what could have been. We're white-knuckling our way back to normal. We don't want to let go when it looks like it might be pulled from us. And so we take Pharaoh's move and we negotiate. We barter with our kids, our spouse, our roommates with God so that we can potentially hold on to what was. Maybe if they give a little, we can have a sliver of what once was. Because part of it is better than none of it. We need to release. We need to open our clenched fists and offer it to the Lord. All of our disappointment, all of the wasted 2020 plans, all of the missed flights, the loss, the time indoors, we release it. We offer it to God. We offer it to him with all of our expectation, with all of our hope, with all of our vision. Because he can take it. He can handle it. He can handle all the grief and loss that the missed expectations bear. 
we release to God our yesterdays so that we can have a vision for tomorrow. Here's how. Really pragmatically, here's how. Name the space where you're disappointed. Like, put your finger on it. Bring it out in the open. There's no use in bottling it up. And once you've named it and identified it, I encourage you to offer it to the Lord in prayer. Cry over it. Grieve it. Surrender it to Him. Let Him have it. The third step is to ask for a new vision. A lot of times we will name the problem and cry out to the Lord, and those are two good starting steps. But often we need to ask for a new vision, ask for the Spirit to move in us, ask for the Spirit to renew something in us. Where are you bringing renewal, God? God, where are you now starting renewal in me and my family? Show me something new. And the fourth step, keep your eyes open. God actually answers prayer. We believe that. Be on the lookout for how he's answering yours, how he's bringing renewal in you, how he's bringing renewal in your family. Maybe how he's doing it and you're missing it. And so how do we pay attention to renewal? How do we participate in the Lord's renewal? We name the space. We offer it to the Lord. We ask for a new vision. We keep our eyes open. But how do we get there? How can we participate in renewal? Well, I think it requires several steps, and it begins with one key move that's a heart posture that needs to be transformed. We need to release, number one. We need to release. Because here we are, we're holding with clenched fists. We're, we're holding on to the way it was supposed to be, to what could have been. We're white-knuckling our way back to normal. We, we don't want to let go, and we're worried that it might be pulled from us. And so even in that tug-of-war, we begin to negotiate like Pharaoh. We barter with our kids, our spouse, our roommates, with God, so that maybe we can hold on to what once was. And, and maybe if they give a little, we can have a sliver of what once was, because part Part of it is better than none of it. We need to release. We need to open our clenched fists and offer it to the Lord. All of our disappointments, all of our 2020 plans that are now wasted, all of our calendars and planners that just might as well switch over into 2021, all of the missed flights, the loss, the time indoors, we release it to God. We offer it to God in all of its expectation, in all of its dashed hopes, in all of its cloudy vision because he can take it and he can handle it. We release to God our yesterday so that he can give us a vision for tomorrow. Now, this is so much different than just maintaining a positive attitude. This is actually watching for renewal. This is participation in renewal. And so if the first step is to release, to begin this process of surrender and releasing, the second step is to pray. That's the second way we participate in the renewal of God. It's to pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for your heart. Pray that you spend time with Jesus, that you enjoy spending time with Jesus. Pray that the Spirit stirs your heart towards something else, towards seeing and watching for renewal. The third thing is find ways to delight in what you have. Often around church, we like to talk about this in terms of thankfulness, to write out lists of things that you're thankful for, the things that you know that God's given you. But I want us to delight. I want us to take it a step further, to enjoy, to enjoy space, 
to enjoy long walks, to enjoy everything we've taken for granted, to enjoy the good things that God's given us. God gave you those things to enjoy them. He loves laughter. Like, have you thought about that? Our God loves laughter. He created things for us to delight and enjoy. Lastly, and uh, this all leads us to be generous. This leads us to be generous. We release, we pray, we delight, and we are generous. We can be radically generous people because we know that God is in fact renewing all things, that he's bringing revival to his church, that God is already being so generous with us on a daily, weekly, hourly, minutely basis that we can then be generous to those around us. It's not even that we have to manifest this internal feeling of generosity, but that we have received the very generosity of Jesus. And so we can project that out. We can engage in generosity with those around us because because the Spirit has enabled us to. And we're free to be generous with the things that he's given us, our gifts, our time, our attention, our money, and our energy. We can be so radically generous. So when you ask, how do we participate in renewal? We release, we pray, we delight, and then we're radically generous. That's how we bring renewal. That's how we recognize and see the renewal around us. That's how we see what's going on and we respond in kind and we spread it to the churches, to the communities, to the cities. Like, can you imagine what this would look like if this spread out into your city, into your neighborhood, on your street? The last three months have been really difficult. If any of us would have taken that Stanford course, none of us would have designed our life this way. COVID did not factor at all into what we wanted for 2020. And this crisis has hit some harder than others. And I think still all of us feel this sense of, can we just kind of go back to the way things were? Like, that's a really easy place to be. And when I let my mind wander, that's where I go every single time. I just want everything back to normal. But I think if we do that, If we sit there as a people, we actually miss out on the renewal that God is bringing here and now. There is renewal happening, and you can participate in it.